2 Corinthians chapter 12. The apostle continues to maintain the honor of his office as apostle. He magnifies his office because some were vilifying it or speaking against it as if he were a villain. Hear now the reading of God's holy word inspired by his spirit and profitable for us. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 1. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear." lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, For when I am weak, then am I strong. I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds." For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children." And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ. 
but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall not, or that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whispers, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Very sad chapter in the life of the Corinthian and Achaean churches. Verses 1 through 10 of this chapter, we have God's grace to the apostle himself and God humbling him by afflictions. Notice even the Apostle Paul himself, the blessed apostle and preacher of the Gentiles, God humbled him through afflictions as he did ancient Israel. He says in verse 1, it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. This word expedient can mean to be profitable or advantageous, offers him some advantage or some profit. He says, no, it's not profitable for me to go on in this. But he gives then a defense for his revelations. Since the false apostles said that Christ had spoken to them and through them, Paul's going to say, here are my credentials as far as my revelations. He says he will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, a vision in the Old Testament and here in the Apostle Paul's writing is where God appears to somebody's mind's eye. They see things not necessarily with their bodily eyes, but often with their mental eyes. In fact, you may assume when you read the prophets that virtually all of their visions are mental, not necessarily physical. The things that they're seeing don't exist in natural phenomena in most cases. It's often some kind of supernatural thing that God put into their head so they could write down for us. Revelations are when God uncovers something. Something is covered over, you can't see it, and then God says, here is the truth of it. He uncovers it. Apocalyptotai. Kalupto is where a veil or a covering sits on something. Apocalypto is where you take off, you put aside the covering. God shows them specific truths and disclosures. Paul's not boasting then of his deeds as he did in the last chapter. Here, he's talking about what God made known to him in visions and in revelations of the Spirit. He says in verse 2, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. In Christ means a man united to Christ, a Christian. Now, it is very interesting, the apostle, when he refers to this vision, he's talking about himself in the third person. He is this man who 14 years ago received this revelation, but he doesn't come right out and say it. He's humbling himself, in other words. He's not boasting. He's not bragging about this vision he's going to tell us about, whether in or out of the body, he did not even know himself. Verse 2, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Now a lot of commentators think they know, but Paul didn't know. He said only God knew. Possibly a trance. Remember Peter had a trance? 
and he saw a vision with all the animals coming down, that would be he's still in his body. But God could have taken him and preserved his body alive while removing his soul. He's not sure whether that happened or whether it was merely a trance. Did his soul go up into heaven? He's not sure. But God knows. He repeats this same thing about God knowing and him not knowing in verse 3 for the sake of emphasis. I note then that there are secret matters that God has not chosen to reveal to us. These things concerning his purposes, his nature, or his decrees, God has not chosen to reveal everything to us. Paul did not even know whether he was in or out of the body. Let us be content then with what we can know, what we do know, what God has revealed. There are words that he heard uttered, he said, are unlawful for me to repeat. It's not right that I should say the things I heard in this vision. But God has given us his word. These are not secret things in the Bible. They are revelations. The book of Revelation is the scriptures. God has unveiled certain things about his purposes. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. This specific vision or revelation was by being caught up to the third heaven. This is the word for rapture. Now the third heaven, if you think about how the Bible describes the heavens, there are three. The Jews say there are seven because they want to be wiser than scripture. But scripture says there are three heavens. The first heaven goes up until the planets. And it's where the birds are. You see them flying up in the heaven. Then above that, there are where all the planets reside, the second heaven. Then beyond that is God himself where he dwells in the third heaven. So when Paul says he was caught up into the third heaven, he's talking about the presence of Almighty God. And in verse 4, he calls it paradise. This word paradise, the paradise of God. Today, Jesus said to the thief who repented, thou shalt be with me where? In the third heaven, in paradise, where God dwells upon his throne. God caught him up into paradise. He heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. God had restricted those words in their use. They were only in a special dispensation for Paul to hear, not for anyone else. Now, Paul could have uttered those to other people, but it would have been a sin on his part. God did not permit him to do so. God showed them to Paul, and possibly some of those words are the basis for the inspired words of the epistles of Paul. But he does not speak those words. He does not tell us those words. There are unutterable words restricted by divine law, even to a chosen vessel like Paul, even to the other apostles or prophets. Listen, therefore, the Bible itself, the oracles of God, are lawful to utter. That's very important. There are people who believe that there are parts of the Bible that you ought not to utter. I listened to a lecture one time where a man talked about family worship, and he advised that you skip over certain chapters and books in the Bible, as if somehow worshiping God, you ought to not utter certain words in the Bible. Don't talk about that part. That's gross. That's scary. That might cause people to think meanie thoughts or bad things. 
No. All of the words of God are lawful to utter. They are not profound mysteries as the papists imagine. So you need a, a priest to tell you what the Bible means. Yes, teachers in the church are profitable and edifying. That's the goal God has in establishing a ministry. But does it mean that the Bible's a bunch of unlawful to utter words that you need a special decoder pen to unlock the mysteries? That's called paganism. That's called Jewish Kabbalism, where everything in the Bible is a mystery and you have to go to the priesthood to tell you the secrets to unlock the Bible as if they're all unutterable words. No. These are God's oracles. They are lawful to utter. They are the revelations that are given, not withholden from us, but given to us. They are necessary. They are profitable. And they are sufficient as a rule of faith and life. Let us then utter those words that God has made lawful to us. Let us not seek after unlawful traditions pretended to be apostolic or mosaic as the Jews and those supposedly Christian imitators of the Jews feign. The, the papacy and the Eastern Orthodox say that there's a oral tradition that was passed down outside of the Bible. Guess who else said that? You know, the Jews. They said there was an oral tradition passed down outside of the Bible. Do you know why they say that? Because their doctrines and their practices can't be found in the Bible, and therefore they have to say there's this tradition. It's kind of a golden lever. You can't lose, right? Well, if you can't prove it from the Bible, I won't believe it. Well, we also have this other line of revelation from God, and it says all those things that aren't in there. Pretty cool, huh? How do you beat that? Well, you can't. It's irrational. It's nonsense. It's gibberish. It's godless. It's satanic. There are lawful words... And there are unlawful words. And the unlawful words, the apostles never told anybody. They told us everything we need. They wrote it down. We have an apostolic tradition that is infallible and that we know its source. So let us receive those things. Paul, though, will not glory of himself, he says in verse 5, in this great revelation he had, this great vision he had. He will glory, he says, in his infirmities. Now, when he refers to himself, his boasting, he says, I will not boast about myself, is a reference, I believe, to his body, the things he suffered and endured, the things he did in his flesh. The things that he boasts about about his body are the weaknesses of his body, his incapacity, his thorn stuck into his flesh. Verse 7, that's what he boasts about the messenger of Satan, sent to buffet me. Why? Lest I should be exalted. Do you remember this from Deuteronomy 8? Why did God cause them to suffer? So that they would be humbled. Why did God allow Satan to buffet his apostle? So that he might be humbled. He had a lot of revelation. He had a lot of knowledge. He needed to go down so that he would not exalt himself. Now, if you've ever listened to televangelists, you realize that Paul didn't know what he was doing. Paul should have rebuked the devil and got out of spiritual boxing gloves, be like, yo, devil, oh, I'm going to knock you out. No, he didn't call the devil by name. You devil, get out of here. Stop bothering me. What did he do? He besought the Lord thrice, he says. 
For this thing I besought the Lord thrice. That's the proper response. If you are ever attacked by a devil, and that does happen, you go to God and you ask him to rebuke this demon. Please drive him away. Please remove this messenger of Satan from me, Lord. He did not rebuke the demon. He urgently besought the favor and help of God. He goes on. God actually revealed something to Paul in his humiliation. My grace, he says, is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Ouch. God's not going to remove that, he says. I'm going to give you grace to suffer. That's what he's telling him. I'm not going to remove the affliction. I'm going to give you grace in the affliction so that men will say, that's not Paul enduring that. That's God enabling Paul to endure that. It's the grace of God in the weakness of his body. That's why he boasts in his weakness. That's why he's going to boast about his bodily weakness because there God's power is known. He glories, he says, in his infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and all these other things. For when I am weak, then am I strong. The Westminster Annotations, Weak in myself, I am strong in Christ. Or, when I am weak in the flesh, I am strong in the spirit. This is both, I believe. It's both his flesh is weak, his spirit is strong, because Christ is working in his spirit. Christ is strengthening his spirit. I note then that prosperity gospels of every sort, Pelagianism or semi-Pelagian heresies where you believe in your own powers to some extent or to a large extent, these are anti-Christian. The gospel is not about our power, it's about the power and grace of God. Let us not chafe when the Lord keeps us under sufferings. Let us rejoice in the grace of God shown to us and through us in our sufferings. Verses 11 through 21, the apostle blames the Corinthians for their faults. He gives a large account of his behavior and his kind intentions toward them. He says that they compelled him. They made it necessary for him to become a fool in boasting because they had accepted the false apostles. They had listened to their false accusations against Paul and they began to believe their doctrines as a result. Paul was forced, he says, to come to his own defense. Verse 11, he says, Though I be nothing, since all that he did, the chiefest of the apostles was not done by himself. It was done by the power of Christ. He is nothing, he says. Though you saw, he said, the signs of an apostle wrought among you. Now notice again the humility of the apostle Paul. Does he say, I wrought signs among you? Truly, I did all these great things. No, he actually uses the passive. The signs of an apostle were wrought. This is the proper attitude. If something is accomplished of spiritual good, who did it? Paul? No. Me? No. You? No. God. God wrought the signs of an apostle. God made manifest that Paul was his chosen messenger through the effect of his ministry. In all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds, 
Here is the threefold signs, wonders, and deeds. He's talking about the same thing, raising the dead, healing the sick, taking poison and not dying. These are the signs of an apostle of the apostolic age that God was giving more Bible to his people, more revelations to his people. He would perform these signs to confirm this man I have chosen. Listen to him. They had seen this. Did the false apostles have this? No. So he brings it forward to draw them back in, to take them with craft and guile, to catch them so that they come back to his doctrines. He says that all these signs were done for them, and if there's one thing he did wrong, what is it? I didn't take money from you. Maybe you can forgive me for that. That's what we call sarcasm. Oh, forgive me. Yeah, I've wronged you so badly I didn't take your money. Sorry about that. Rather, he says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you rather than take your money as the false apostles. I'll spend my money and I'll spend my life for you. And he was glad to do so. Very glad, he says. He sought for their benefit, for their spiritual growth. The Christian life then must be a life lived and devoted to God and his service and serving his people. Let us then be devoted to God. Let us spend our resources and ourselves in building God's kingdom for the good of his people. Now, the more Paul loved them, the less he was loved. They returned evil for good, and therefore they were liable to judgment. Do you know that? If you return evil in, in return for good done to you, you open the door to be judged. And he's going to refer to that in the rest of this chapter, how the Corinthians now are in a position to be judged by the power of Christ given to the Apostle Paul. He asked them again, did I make a gain of you? I didn't covet your money. Titus didn't covet your money. Nobody I sent to you took money from you. What makes you think that I'm doing this for gain? He's not excusing himself, he says in verse 19. We speak before God in Christ. I speak before the face of God. I'm not looking at you as my judges to excuse myself to you. When he comes, he was afraid. Verse 20, he says, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. What does this sound like? A bunch of little infants, a bunch of little toddlers, but they're grown people, aren't they? Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? He called them babes in Christ. Here it is. Wah! Gimme! Angry, yelling, striving, backbiting each other. You know what that is? It's where you speak evil of someone who's not there. That's backbiting. Whisperings. It's where you go off and quietly talk about somebody else. Whisperings. Swellings, you're lifted up with pride. Tumults, fights, disorders, chaos. This is the idea, throwing off lawful authority. These tumults, all these things. If I come, he says, and you haven't repented, there's going to be problems. He says, my God will humble me among you, that I shall bewail many which have sinned already. When Paul is required to use the rod of church discipline, it's a humiliating act. Why? 
Well, he was supposed to be their spiritual instructor, wasn't he? He was supposed to guide them in the truth. He was supposed to build them up in holiness and love, and now they're a bunch of infants. Whining, backbiting, slandering. Is that what his ministry produces? It's humbling to have to discipline and censure in this way. They should have made progress, and here they're going backwards. He even refers to some, verse 21, who have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Another three in one. Three things describing one. Uncleanness, fornication, and lasciviousness. These people were perverse. They were sexually perverse. They were evil in their tongues. They debated. They had wrath in their minds. Their minds were ruled over by their affections, their emotions. Censures then would come against them because they refused the medicine of repentance. They would not turn from their sins. They have not repented, he said. I already warned you in 1 Corinthians and in this whole epistle, and if I have to come again a third time, I will judge you by the power of Christ. We all sin, but we must repent. We must turn from our sins And we must come in obedience to everything that the Lord has commanded. And thus far the explanation of 2 Corinthians chapter 12.